it would have worked really well actually um to see and i mean i feel like although we probably all knew that arthur but you know what if for some reason you know doing it again you're you're stopping in the middle of a sentence oh i know i just i i didn't realize that i did Welcome back to Merlissen Guys, a bi-weekly podcast about BBC Smerlin, where we talk about the show, the ships, the fandom, the characters, and everything in between. I'm Momotastic. And I'm a Snowfox. And today we are going to be talking about cinematography and special effects in a new issue of the Love to Hate category. And for this, we've invited a guest, and it is Academy Award winner, Amphigori. <laughs> How are you now? <laughs> She actually has an Academy Award, yes. guys. We found this <laughs> out just before we started recording, and it's just, yeah, we are we are in the presence of celebrity. Yes, I, I haven't officially held it, but my work <laughs> my work did win it, <laughs> and I'm up for another one this year. So we'll see. There's a BAFTA tonight, so yeah, there's a BAFTA tonight. So <laughs> do you have a BAFTA yet? Uh, yeah, because that was the same year that I won that Academy Award too. So. Okay, plenty award winner Amphigori <laughs> on the podcast tonight. If I ever meet you in person, I'll need to have an autograph. Oh yes. my! <laughs> Just so I can say that I have an autograph from an Academy Award winner and a BAFTA winner. <laughs> Let's go to the news. Out of the Auditory is a podfic fest for fan works that aren't standard fanfiction formats. Examples of works that you can podfic for this fest include, but are not limited to, chatfic, metaposts, epistolaries, fake scientific articles, poetry. It is open to all fandoms. The assignments for Camelot Remix are out. If you signed up for Camelot Remix but haven't received a message from the mods yet, Get in touch with them ASAP. That has been it for news. And now we are going to have some talkbacks. And of course, Amph, you're more than invited to uh, join in on the conversation if you so please. Am I talking back to my own talkbacks? <laughs> um, no, actually no. not. We have two <laughs> other talkbacks to talk about. None, none from you. Our first talkback comes from Lao Pendragon. And Lao commented on our episode where we talked about the legends. And Lao said this. I had to stop once or twice while I was listening, so maybe I missed it somehow. But I waited for the mention of the actual Sword in the Stone legend, which had an quote-unquote, interesting twist in the BBC series. And by twist, I mean Merlin came up with the story. I would have loved to know what you thought about this. I don't think we talked about this, did we? I don't know how we managed to not talk about this, actually. <laughs> but I guess about a lot just... of things. Yeah, but this is like, they made a movie about this. <laughs> like, how did we avoid it? It's, it's kind of a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how, but I, I be, guess maybe because it was so not a big deal in Merlin, maybe. like it was just in a throwaway scene. Like, yeah. I mean, and to be fair, in the legends, Merlin also came up with the com- concept, if not the super elaborate backstory for the 
for the sword in the stone. Like Merlin was the one who put it in the stone to begin with and was like, who pulls this sword from the stone is the rightful king of yeah, true. Uh, Britain and so on. Um, Say what you want about the uh, stars Camelot, but I really like the sword legend from there too, the Lady of the Lake. I don't know if you guys seen that, but I have seen it, but I don't remember anything about Lady of the Lake. I remember the top how... of the lake when she was trying to swim away, so that her arm was like just holding it out. Oh man, it was good. He walked right out onto the top of the lake, grabbed the sword right out of her hand. Something like that. I do remember that him <sighs> pulling the sword from the stone, like he had to climb up a waterfall or something. I do remember yeah. that, which was like crazy. But um, I just, I just remember uh, Jamie Kimball Bowers' naked butt from the show. Like, we all that... take what we need from that show, don't we? <laughs> Truly. <laughs> which for me was nothing. <laughs> yeah, no, that's literally the only thing I remember from the couple of episodes I saw. So obviously. That's that's the impression I had of this show. And I wasn't even attracted to Jamie Campbell Bauer at the time. I'm not super attracted to him now, but I remember his butt. Oh, my God. But, yeah, the legend, I don't know how, uh, I mean, I wasn't a huge fan of how they did it in the show. I think even though kind of Merlin, BBC is kind of based around the fact of Merlin being kind of the behind the scenes guy of, a lot of these major moments I did kind and I I don't know a lot about the sword in the stone myth per se but I do like the the sword in the stone book and I especially love the sword in the stone movie that obviously it was based on and I do kind of like that it was actually this massive plot point and for me one of the most iconic like scenes from the Disney canon anyway is Arthur pulling the sword out from the stone and kind of the big deal that it is and how it's almost seen as like this huge religious experience. And in the show, I I don't know how I feel about the fact that Arthur was kind of semi tricked into believing it was a real thing. What I, what I really want to say is that I find it super interesting that on the show, Merlin used magic while Arthur was pulling this, uh, the sword from the stone like yeah Arthur wouldn't have been able to do it without Merlin's help while in the legends Merlin just set the whole thing up and he didn't have to be there for the for the actual pulling of the sword part meanwhile on on BBC's Merlin Merlin made sure that he was in the perfect position to see when Arthur was actually going to pull it so that he could use magic to help Arthur along and then make a big show in front of the audience. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I find that very interesting, this contrast. Well, I know you've, didn't you put, uh, you said once or you wrote it in your notes about how it kind of, Merlin is the, kind of deciding almost who is the worthy king, yeah, right? So, yeah, it's sort of... Mm, it's, that's it's, a good point. Yeah, it's Merlin who, I mean, Merlin... Like, for Merlin, from the start, Arthur has always been, you know, the right king. This is just, like, in in the on the show, Merlin, it's just the, the sword is basically a device, a crutch to help Arthur understand something. It's not so much Merlin choosing Arthur. I mean, in a way, Merlin is the one who chooses to support Arthur and to make sure that Arthur survives and that Arthur has all the support he needs to become this great, amazing king. But on the show, the the sword isn't really used in the way that the legends use the sword. Merlin just uses the sword to make Arthur believe that he's the right king. While in the legends, 
the the sword is literally used as basically a DNA test. Mm-hmm. That's right. Which is why it's so important and it's so cool. Yeah. And and like when 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 Merlin put the sword in the stone at the end of season three, I remember thinking, oh my god, this is gonna be a big deal. And it's literally just a throwaway moment because Arthur's feeling a bit down because yeah, someone else I mean, has it, invaded it, Camelot. It sort of makes sense because, I mean, in that you can sort of draw the parallel because in uh, in the legends, the sword is used to uh, to show who has the legitimate claim to the throne. But in BBC's Merlin, we already know that Arthur is the one who has the legitimate claim to the throne. The only one who sort of stop believing it is Arthur. So it kind of shows Arthur, no, you are the legitimate heir to the throne. And in that way, Merlin is the one who is telling Arthur that, just with the help mm. of a big sword in a big stone. <laughs> you know. How many times can we say sword in a stone without... Before I start laughing. <laughs> before anyone starts giggling about the very obvious innuendo here. Um, what I What I will say is that I think what could have been really cool is that if maybe they'd have extended the whole kind of Morgana invasion thing for a bit longer, and then there could have been an actual kind of test to see who is or isn't worthy. And they could have actually made that a whole thing. Whereas Morgana invaded for like a two parter and then she's gone and, you know, injured by the end of it. it, And, you know, if it hadn't been like, if Merlin had actually done something so that it would act the same way that it does in the legends where once Merlin has put it there, no one, not even he himself, can pull it free unless they have the right to the throne of Camelot. And then he would have taken, like, he would have lured Morgana there, and then she and Arthur would have had basically a sword-pulling face-off. Yeah, basically. Man, that sounds so dirty. <laughs> sword-pulling face-off. I ship it. Face-off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but... I mean, Excalibur essentially acts as Thor's hammer, sort of like, you know, whoever's whoever's worthy shall be able to wield it. So I think that what if Morgana had actually ended up maybe being worthy, even though she's like a villain and that could have been like an like a whole thing where it was like a big plot twist or something, because they always say in these articles, they're like, oh, we're doing this, but we're doing it in a different way. I'm like, you're Mm -hmm. literally not doing it any, there's no different with the sword and the stone. Nothing was really subverted apart from the fact that now like Merlin is making Arthur believe things that are true, but aren't really true because Arthur believes that he was able to pull this sword out of the stone because he is the most worthy person. Um, Amph, do you have anything else to add about the uh, sword and the stone legend? I with... really like I really like the sword and the stone legend that they did in Excalibur, where it wasn't Merlin that put it in the rock, but oh man, it's been years since I've seen it, but I think it was Uther himself when because oh. he was the original. Because, yeah, he was, like, wounded in battle, and he just in the forest, and he walks up to this rock, and he says, no one shall wield Excalibur but me, and he crushes it into the rock, and Merlin's like, what have you done? <laughs> it was really good. It was, oh, man, Excalibur, highly recommended. Yeah, I've heard really good things about it. I should, I should actually check it out. Okay, then our next comment is from Ellerwen who commented on our episode review of The Poison Chalice, so Rox will be excited. I love it so much. (laughs) (laughs) 
If I could only Same. watch one episode of Merlin for the rest of my life, it would probably be Poison Chalice. There's something about that. I never get tired of that episode. Um, it's just so good. <laughs> All right. I mean, Eliwen seems to agree because she says, I love this episode. Like, there are legitimate several O's in love here. I love this episode. It's just so Martha. I even wrote a hurt, comforty, canon divergent fic for it for Merlin Canon Fest this year. Shameless self promotion. And we shall include it in the show notes. Other one also says I don't care if the screenwriters thought about the immortal Merlin plotline or not when they wrote it, because I refuse to let go of my firm belief that the potion was given to him too late and wasn't what brought Merlin back to life. You just can't take that away from me. Like that's you're you're free to believe whatever you want. That's, that's yeah. the beauty of of fandom and headcanon. It just it 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 only pisses me off when people like sh- like use it as evidence for Merlin being immortal, and I'm like, you can't like that is circumstantial evidence. It's not real because they hadn't written that yet. Like you can't use that to prove that Merlin has been immortal all this time. Also, as I'm pretty sure we discussed in the actual review, someone's heart stopping doesn't mean that they're dead. That's what defibrillators mm-hmm. are for. <laughs> so it doesn't actually mean. In anything. I'm sorry, I'm really good hyped up about this. I'm also uh, a fan of that yes, headcanon though. Your headcanons are valid. <laughs> no, I mean but yeah, but this is the thing, like as like a headcanon, obviously it works really well yeah. and there are a lot of instances of this where Merlin should have probably died from being hit against a wall or blasted with some magical thing, but um but he doesn't. And obviously the real answer is is that it's a fantasy show and people survive pretty weird yeah, knocks and Arthur, Arthur gets hit over the head and gets thrown against the wall and he survives all the time and he definitely isn't immortal (laughs) we know that because he dies at the end (laughs) i know you guys mentioned it in the last review for um the season finale that for season one there where merlin gets hit in the chest with that fireball and he's out for the count but then just the way his eyes open i was just watching that the other day and i was like oh man that's immortal immortal (laughs) i think the only thing about immortal merlin that really kind of grates on me the more i think about it is it's such a big deal and yet i wish we'd actually had um like an arc where merlin realizes he's immortal because you'd think that would be a pretty big like we don't have it like we're just like he never actually finds out and wouldn't that be a pretty big important thing for his character to realize hey i'm never dying that's pretty big Eliwen also says, I think the reason why they don't use the magical connection between Merlin and Arthur again is because Merlin doesn't really know how he did that, as he did it when he was unconscious and doesn't try or doesn't succeed to do that again. Yeah, but just my my comment is just because Merlin, the character, doesn't know how to make the connection happen doesn't mean the writers can't use it. Like, why doesn't Merlin make it happen by accident like he he does sort of make it happen by accident no he actually does make it happen deliberately in season five at the very end when he tells Arthur, i'm coming i'm coming just hold on uh that's the only <laughs> other time he actually <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I remember I that fic eagle first man get your minds out of the gutter i heard amp giggle first so i felt like i was allowed <laughs> I will be arriving. I will be arriving. Just 
hold out until I get there. Oh my gosh, I mute my mic for reading these. Oh my god. <laughs> and so, you know, that's where it happened again. But like I said, it could have happened, you know, without thought, like subconsciously, any other point on the show, like they could have made that happen. It's not like there wasn't a way for them to put it in. Like just because Merlin, that, that's what I'm saying, just because Merlin doesn't know how to make it happen deliberately doesn't make doesn't mean it can't happen anyway at least once every season or so or once every two season even you know that's my gripe what did Elowen have to say next past those instances of Arthur muttering Merlin's name are completely different situations the first time when Arthur mutters Merlin's name in his sleep is when he's hurt in 1213 and there's nothing magic about it it's just Arthur totally arse over tits in love, muttering his true love's name, which I completely agree. Also, there is literally no platonic explanation for Arthur muttering Merlin's name in that episode. I'm sorry. Like, at all. <laughs> it's so wonderful. Um, another time Arthur says Merlin's name when sleeping or rather waking up is in 512 when Merlin is using the crystals and speaks to Arthur through them. Magic is involved that time, but it could be said that it's stronger than ever because he kind of leveled up by retrieving it. Plus, there's a huge amount of crystals all around him, which is what Momo just said, like, you know, how kind of is used, but it's not really the same way that was used with the with the ball of light. I can't think of any episode where the whole gang goes to Merlin's rescue, but there's the servant of two masters where part of the gang goes to the rescue, Arthur and Gwen, when they head off to the forest to find him. And then Gwen and Gaius when they're stopping him from killing Arthur. And I guess that kind of works, but I mean, Gwen and Gaius are definitely more concerned with saving Arthur than whatever's happening to Merlin. Like, yeah. cause trying to kill him. <laughs> like yeah. that's, that, that makes sense because, you know, Merlin's not a danger to himself, but he could murder the king of Camelot. <laughs> So, um, Elwin goes on to say, and then there's quite a few instances of Arthur being concerned and or endangering the mission to protect Merlin. That stupid stunt in With All My Heart, where he pretty much jumps off a cliff for him, comes to mind. That's so, true. yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my god, Arthur. You are please. under, like, you are under time pressure. You need to, you need to get your wife to this, to the sorceress that you don't know <laughs> to heal your wife. But you're concerned about what happens to Merlin, no matter how much time it's going to take you to rescue him. Sure, Arthur. Looks like you're going to cut his own arm off in that scene, too. Like, yeah, yeah, buddy, just take a breath. <laughs> Relax. <laughs> sort yourself out. Um, and Elowen goes on to say, so yeah, it's not the same as the whole gang saving him but at least we can see some concern happening which yeah is nice uh, and then she just ends with and yeah i giggle at the swallow merlin too so i'm not alone in that at least <laughs> because every time i see it i'm like oh my god <laughs> it's just and especially because it's guy is saying it i'm like <laughs> I don't, my favorite I don't. in that is when um gwen's like he's getting hotter and everyone yeah. uses that clip for like yeah. season five Merlin he's getting hotter <laughs> or it's something like Merlin the series a summary and then the gif of Gwen saying he's getting hotter <laughs> if you want to leave us a comment for our episodes you can do this on the following platforms you can leave us a comment on our website merlison.paracaproductions.com or you can just type Merlison into google and it should come up like at the top and if you comment on our website, we will be reacting to your comment in a future episode of Melissa. You can also find us on Tumblr as melissa.tumblr.com, where you can 
we blog our posts and leave comments either in the caption or the text. You can reply to the episode posts. You can send us asks or direct messages. You can tweet us at Merlissen on Twitter and then comment your retweets or tweet at us or however you want to communicate on Twitter. You can email us at merlissen.podcast at gmail.com. You can leave us reviews and rates on iTunes. And of course, we have a Discord where you can talk to us like Amph so often does, for example. That's it. If you join our Discord, you can be talking to Academy Award winner Amphigori all the time. And you can get the invite on our Tumblr or our website. (laughs) How about you, Academy Award winner Amphigori? (laughs) Introduce yourself a little to our listeners, how you got into Merlin what you do in fandom, where we can find you, where you actually want to be found. How much time do you have? (laughs) (laughs) How I I got into Merlin is an amazing story. Oh my god, I can't wait to hear (laughs) this. Yes, please please tell us the story. It was July 1st, 2010, 7pm in Hope, BC. Like, that's how I I know, because July 1st is Canada Day, which is a big event obviously, because it's, you know, it's Canada, Canada Day. Day. I had this awesome idea of taking an extra long weekend to go camping with my boyfriend at the time. He's my husband now. Um, Good for him. But yeah, peak Canadian. We were going to go down to the lake. We we're going to get our tents, you know, and campfire, cooler full of food, like old school camping. And how it normally goes is it's first come, first serve. So you drive out early, like Thursday morning, and you get the best spot by the lake. So we load up the car and we headed out on the bright. And unbeknownst to me... 2010 was the year the provincial government started implementing online reservations for camping. So you didn't have to go out early. You could just go online. So every spot we went to in the morning was booked. They all had these little tags. Like they were empty. Nobody was showing up until Saturday. But that means we only got like one night to stay. So we drove around looking for any, any spots and there was nothing. And we went down like bumpy logging roads looking for something off the beaten path and there was nothing. Um, so we drove to the nearest town for lunch because it's been hours now. And we discovered that there was a campground near Hope that we could try. But because we were going down the logging roads, the car battery actually shook loose and it had to get repaired. And it was it was nuts. It was, it was a terrible day so far. And the campground near Hope, guess what? All booked up to. Of course. This whole, on- <clears throat> this whole online reservation thing was just terrible. So at this it point, we'd been. You over. It was, yeah, we were been on the road for about 12 hours at this point. Um, so we gave up and we found a motel room in hope and I was not happy. I have this whole cooler full of food and it's supposed to last us four days. So I'm cooking hot dogs in the microwave in the motel room (laughs) and eggs. And actually, I actually managed to make s'mores in the microwave too, which is pretty good. Um, settled in, you know, there's like, they have a TV. I was watching, my husband's watching TV and he's like, Let's watch some TV. I'm like, I was furious, right? Like, camping was ruined. But, you know, husband's flipping through the channel guide and he says, oh, hey, Merlin's on next. That's an okay show. And I'm like, whatever. I don't care. (laughs) But but, he's he's seen a few episodes and he said he liked it. And so I was like, fine, put it on. And it's, it's, you know, doing its thing, starting up and... 
he's talking my ear off about, oh, it's like Smallville and Merlin's young and Magic Ally. That's Uther. He's bad. Oh, this is and I, I literally snap and I'm like, just let me watch the fucking show. Shut up. I'm so angry. What episode was it? Well, this episode had everything I loved in a show. It had action and adventure and self-sacrifice and wump. It happened to be episode four. The Poison Chalice. Poison Chalice. <laughs> oh my god! The Poison <laughs> fucking Chalice. I'm so happy. For that to be your first episode, like, that is amazing. And I, I literally thought at the end, I'm like, they're doing like, thanks for saving me. Like, yeah, no problem, but dude, it's fine. And I'm like, I'm like, oh my god. The internet probably ships the fuck out of these two, right? And I go home. <laughs> And, and I was not disappointed. And, yeah, of course. The internet and, shipped the fuck out of these two before the show even started officially. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, I went home and I mainlined all of season one and two. Because this was the summer of 2010. It was just about to yeah. do season three next. And this was back when you could find all the episodes on YouTube. So Yeah, I, I remember those days. Pow, 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 knocked them all out. And I drew my first fan art on July 24th. So, um, yeah, about, about yeah, three weeks 20, later. Yeah, the end. But yeah, so you're not you're not uh, you're not a post season fiver because yeah. there's a <laughs> who is like I'm not gonna get hurt by this. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen the gift sets on Tumblr. I wanted to see the hurt in this show. No, but what? but I was aware of the legend, so I knew. Like I was like, oh, they they got to do it, right? I mean, so I was I went in knowing that it was eventually going to happen. Just just waiting for that sort of Damocles to drop finally. <laughs> God. Well, there you go, and you've been in hell ever since. <laughs> yeah. And and yeah, so I've been I've done I've been doing visual effects since before. I've been in the industry for twelve years now, and worked on all manner of television and and um, blockbusters and duds and you know this is good stuff. I've worked in London and I've worked in Vancouver uh, across six different studios. Nice, very nice, amazing. And in the Merlin fandom, you draw fan art. Yes, I am a fan artist. Yes. It's been a little slow recently, but um, I'm giving... <laughs> let me tell you, let me tell you something about parenthood. Oh, my God. You think you have all the time, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, let's talk about cinematography and special effects. And if our listeners are anything like me, then they'll probably uh, need a bit of information on what cinematography actually is. And because I'm... I'm the person who knows the least of things. <laughs> I'll try to do that, and then you guys can just correct me where I'm wrong. Um, so basically what I do when I don't know anything, I go to Wikipedia, because where else would I get my information? <clears throat> so this is uh, a highly edited and abbreviated version of what I found on Wikipedia. Cinematography is the science or art of motion picture photography. And the word cinematography is based on the Greek words kinema, meaning movement or motion. And uh, do I pronounce this graphene? Maybe. Meaning to record. Together, these mean recording motion. The word used to refer to the art process or job of filming movies, but later its meaning became restricted to motion picture photography. The thing is, I never really like I never really understood what it is about 
because I was like, if it's just about the act of filming something, then why do we have categories at movie awards for it? How can people like Amphigori become Academy Award winners for cinematography? No, actually, you're for special effects. Sorry. Um, visual effects. Visual effects. So clearly, I was missing something here. <laughs> so then I went on YouTube and found some videos that would explain it to me in small words. And I will, sh I will link this video that I found in our show notes. What I learned is this. Cinematography is not just the act of filming something, but also about filming it the right like filming the right thing in the right moment, in the right way, to convey an element of the story that's relevant to the plot. This can be information, this can be emotion, it can be both. So that's what I learned, that cinematography is storytelling at its most ba basic <laughs> through careful selection of what images are shown to the audience in what way. Um, cool. Thank you. <laughs> Um, <laughs> shall I go through some of what I learned when I was in film school? Yes, yes please. please. <laughs> cool. So bear in mind that what I'm about to say is a very, very basic kind of understanding of cinematography and all the various facets that go with it. Because as I'm sure people can imagine, when it comes to cameras and when it comes to lights, there is so many things that you need to know about and need to be aware of if you like ever want to go into cinematography. But basically... Cinematography is every single choice that is made uh, in terms of what is shown to the audience visually. Um, now, obviously, some of this will have a big impact as to what the editor chooses to show and doesn't show as well. But kind of in general, you can kind of split cinematography um, up into different uh, paths, as it were. And these people on set will have very different jobs that they'll obviously be specialized in. So we have lighting. And usually when you come to light a scene, you'll be asking yourselves the following questions. You'll be thinking, uh, shall we use natural light? Now, for a lot of indie filmmakers, for example, or people like me that were making student films, sometimes natural light is all you can work with because you you just don't like either the school that you're with can't provide you with the light you need to light a massive exterior scene or you just don't have the money to bring in the light so you want to in general work with natural light as much as you can but obviously it has its limitations so if you're working with natural light it will be okay how can we bounce it where do we want it we don't want to be casting shadows so we need to make sure that we're filming in the right direction it is quite limiting to work with natural light when it comes to artificial light the cinematographer will have to be aware of exactly how they want to light the scene and obviously the key to all of this is why why am i lighting the scene this way what kind of bulbs am i going to need to use what kind of color temperature am i going to need to have that will all have an impact on what the audience is going to see am i going to have highlight am i going to have low light even for example deciding what level of darkness you want is just as important i'm thinking specifically um there's uh, and i always talk about titanic i do apologize but there's a scene in titanic where um, Kate Winslet is in a in a corridor. She's running to try and find uh, something to um, get Jack out of uh, jail. And uh, the lights all go out, and there's like a like a good few seconds where she's just trapped in the dark. But obviously, the audience wouldn't be able to see anything if it was in complete darkness. And you have a tiny tiny glint in her eye that has to be lit from somewhere. So that is a that is a decision, and it and it really makes the scene extremely scary because it's all you can see is that glint in her eye and it's really really powerful so that is i mean lighting is 
like a whole ball game that you have to be aware of in terms of where you're going to, you know, even a stupid thing like where you're going to run cables, um, will the cables be seen? I know that when I worked on my film, we had to basically choose which direct, like we had to shoot everything from one side first and then we could move to the other side because we basically had to have a whole kind of rig of lights on one side that was taped down so that no one was going to be tripping on anything and then we'd move it onto the other side. So lighting is really going to dictate where you can and can't put things essentially. Where those cables are also depends if you have to fix it in post. If yeah. you're recording cables on the floor, your visual effects uh, team is not going to thank you for that. Exactly. <laughs> And um, keep your I mean, boom mics out of the shot. Yes, I mean that is kind of like a different. But for the love of God, please just make sure that your boom operator and your and your camera assistant are in cahoots because otherwise it's a nightmare. Um, but even things like mirrors, you know, be like be watchful of mirrors, like things like that. It's like little things that you have to kind of think about that are the more like uh, silly things that you can forget about. Um, the next kind of category is lenses which is for the love of god a minefield that and by the way i am not a trained cinematographer i am this is very basic knowledge that i have of photography and of lenses like an actual trained uh, dop will be able to tell you a lot more about this but basically in in theory you have a choice of three types of lenses that you can use if you're going to be on a shoot which you have a wide lens which basically offers a larger depth of field which essentially means pretty much most of what you see in shot is going to be in focus wide lenses basically also allow uh the objects in the shot to look like they're slightly further away from one another so they'll look like things in the background are a lot further away than they actually are it just kind of helps the audience sit in the moment make them feel like they're present and depending on what kind of wide lens you use it can give the most kind of um effective look of a natural eye so for example i know um uh in uh some films uh i'm thinking specifically of call me by your name they wanted to basically just shoot with one lens so that it was it basically looked like it was like what your natural eye would look obviously your natural eye won't look exactly like that but it's that kind of idea and that will obviously be a decision specifically to the film that you're making um a telephoto lens will give you that kind of blurry background effect so basically you have uh, a much flatter depth of field and also objects that you have in the shot will look much closer together and especially for like action movies and things this can be really helpful because if you want to create um, a lot of tension if you want things to look very claustrophobic like that can that can really do a world of good and if anyone's seen the favorite, you'll notice that the shots are fucking distorted. Like they, yeah, they are, they, you essentially look like you're in a fishbowl. And that is that kind of, um, distorted look that you'll get from like an ultra wide lens. And that is, uh, I mean, it, it's kind of difficult to look at. But again, that is a choice that the filmmaker, that the DOP is making to make you feel a certain thing. And in that instance, it was to make you feel distorted, to make you feel like you're, like you're not really sure what's going on. And that rarely happens. Like, in, like like using such a wide lens like that but that is essentially the look that you're going to get with a wide lens to be honest with you though the list of lenses that you can use are are as long as the day is long so like <laughs> like basically if you want to go and do some more research into lenses like if you're into cinematography jesus christ you can have i mean i still don't even understand half but like half of what they do and a lot of the people that i know that are actually into photography like even they are constantly learning and i'm sure Amph will be able to like back me up on this that it's just yes. like a minefield and a lot of money lenses will cost you more than the camera sometimes it's kind <sighs> yep. of disgusting um 
yeah uh so essentially when it comes to lenses like and this is basically what you're thinking of when any kind of aspect of cinematography every single lens that you use on your camera is a choice whether you think about it or not even if you're thinking oh well this is just kind of like a standard lens okay but why are you using that standard lens what is the purpose of the lens that you're using it needs to communicate something specific otherwise it's basically just a waste um you can like i said make things appear closer or further away you can distort images there is um really wonderful sequences in a 2001 a space odyssey where um i haven't seen it for years but there's a sequence where uh there's one of the astronauts is like walking through a really really tight space and the camera has a quite a wide lens on it actually and the edges are looking a bit distorted and you're supposed to feel very kind of um uneasy in that moment i think that's when things are starting to turn a bit sinister and like the ai is about to like attack or something and like that that can only be achieved like through that kind of language of visual means of using the right lens of using the right kind of techniques um and obviously some lenses do lend themselves better to some genres rather than others you're not going to use a super crazy wacky lens on something like Downton Abbey which you want or like Merlin where you want a very classic sort of look some lenses work better than others for certain genres um, then you have camera work which is basically again choice where are you going to put the camera and why are you going to put the camera there are you going to have a static shot or a moving shot this will also affect what kind of lens you can actually use and like Amp said if you are going to be moving the camera be aware of what's around you. <laughs> try to be aware of mirrors. Try to be aware of boom mics. Be aware of cables. Be aware of where other things are in relation to you. That's just logistical things. But from a story perspective, you know, you want to make sure. And this is why obviously storyboarding is so important, because you need to understand what kind of emotional impact the angle and where you're putting the camera is going to have. And sometimes where you put the camera and the camera settings that you use, they can give you the same effect, for example, in terms of depth of field that just using a particular kind of lens can. So if you can't afford a particular kind of lens, but you still want, for example, that blurry background, you can do it by playing with things like the aperture and the shutter speed and things like that and putting the camera in a specific place. So, again, if you are interested in cameras, this is all stuff you can obviously go and research. I don't know that much about it, but I am aware that this is a thing that you can do. Um, and framing, which in Merlin, I feel like, especially in the latter seasons, they, I mean, some of these shots are framed so beautifully that I'm just kind of like, I just want them on my wall. <laughs> like they're so gorgeous yes. with, you know, especially they were very good at putting things uh, in a, creating a gorgeous focal point right in the middle of things. Like, you know, people walking towards something or especially when the boys were walking towards something or when something very dramatic was happening. It's so pleasing to have like a really nice focal point. And that's kind of what you need to understand. Um, I remember watching Pirates of the Caribbean uh, years ago for the first time and watching it with the commentary and Jeffrey Rush, who is obviously a very very uh seasoned actor and knows his stuff is was kind of aware of kind of where the human eye will naturally want to uh, go and he says well people naturally tend to look left to right so he would always make a point of putting himself on the left hand side of the screen because that's where the most important information should really be and then by the time you get to the right hand side you're kind of not paying as much attention so it's things like that that can really make a difference and why you know you'll notice when people are in a shot if there's a close-up or if two people are talking, one person is usually more towards one side than the other. It gives a bit more of an aesthetically pleasing look to the actual framing of the shot. Um, so kind of all in all, it's 
like what uh like what Momo said and what I just said it's all about why you know why are you doing it any aspect of filmmaking always has to be what information are you trying to portray to the audience and every single choice that you make is going to whether you think it is or not have an impact and more importantly than anything good cinematography should never draw attention to itself this is something i think that sam raimi said when he was making the spider-man films because obviously there's some really wacky camera stuff that he does when he's doing all the swinging sequences and stuff and he says well you know my biggest compliment as a director is when people say they didn't notice anything at all because you're not really and i'm sure for visual effects <laughs> it's the same thing like if you can kind of tell oh that's a nice visual effect shot i bet amphor's kind of kicking herself in <laughs> like <laughs> damn it i wish they hadn't um i do have some cool little things here written down because when i did go to film school we had uh, these really fun workshops that we did that were organized for us by our teachers where we got to sit and talk to people that were actually in the industry um and one of the people that we spoke to was a director of photography who had worked on multiple projects but probably most well known maybe to a lot of you would be the crown so he was actually the dop uh, is as far as uh, as far as i know still the dop for that show which obviously looks fantastic and uh he uh had some tips for us so so, like these were the kind of tips and his take on certain aspects of of cinematography that he thought were very important so he says um the most essential person on set for a dop in his opinion is a focus puller because if your shot is out of focus i mean you there's really not much you can do about that like you can't really fix it in post so for him that was like the most essential person to have on set someone who really knew what they were doing uh and where to pull the focus and when they needed to so that they actually could get things in in the take and not have to redo things um he gave us some tips on how to avoid problems during shooting from a cinematography standpoint. So he says, be aware of your actors in relation to light sources and how that's going to affect your final result. So if you have lamps in the scene, for example, that might be a prop, but it's still a light source and it's still something that's going to affect the camera and it's going to affect your actors. So if you're planning like so that's, for example, you know, your DOP is going to have to negotiate with the prop department and all this other kind of stuff. And costumes are going to affect that as well. What kind of light is going to bounce off well of certain fabrics? This is all stuff that you need to think about. He said prep time is invaluable. And normally you don't have that much of it, especially in TV, as we know from Merlin, where they were rushed off their feet all the time. So he says, if you can get a hold of the script and a lot of the time you won't have that luxury. But if you can read the script, read it and make notes on it. Think about how you're going to light the scene before you even get on set. And of course, some things will change. Weather especially will make a big difference to what you're going to be doing. But just make notes, be aware and get a get kind of an emotional read of the material as a dop you have your own gut instinct as to what something might might look like or should look like for for the characters and the storytelling so use it and actually make notes during that prep time try to shoot things as close to how you want them as possible now for indie filmmakers this isn't really going to be possible and what I mean by shoot as closely to how you want them. So if you want a particular color temperature or if you want your scene to look a particular way, have a particular amount of light or a particular color, shoot it as as much that way with the camera as you can and light it as as well as you can. And he actually said fix it in post is a myth. Sorry, Amp. <laughs> yes, no, no, totally agree. 
there's too many directors who rely on that so much. They're like, ah, this green screen has so many wrinkles in it. Whatever, we'll fix it in post. They'll just roto it all. It's like, no, no, please properly light your green screens, you guys. You'll exactly. save so much money because you exactly. spend a lot of money on on visual on on fixing it in post. Oh, oh boy. Another pointer that he had was be mindful of your shots. And by be mindful of your shots, he says, especially close ups. Don't be afraid of wide shots. A close up of your reaction, for example, to your mother dying will be a lot more impactful if you haven't been using a ton of close ups for less impactful scenes leading up to it. A close up must provide new information and not just be used for the sake of it. Now, that doesn't mean don't shoot coverage, but especially when it comes to cutting the film, just, yeah, don't be afraid of doing something that maybe feels like, oh, I should be cutting to a close-up here. Well, you don't necessarily have to. There's actually um, a lot of films uh, that are like especially Woody Allen does a lot of this kind of stuff where he just keeps the camera on wide and it it can be a bit weird to watch it sometimes because we're so not used to it but at the end of the day that is kind of what the human eye does and it can in in certain films provide a really interesting perspective on how you're seeing things and you can pick up on things that other actors are doing and actors can kind of have a chance to maybe ad-lib or do things that they wouldn't be able to before um but i do appreciate that oftentimes close-ups especially when you have a grueling schedule, have to be done for coverage reasons and stuff. I know, for example, Katie talks about how in season, uh, uh, I think it was four or five of Merlin, they only had Amelia Fox for like two days in in like one moment that they needed her. So they shot all of Amelia's uh, coverage and then Amelia went off to do another show and then they shot all of Katie's coverage. And of course, they wouldn't have been able to do that in a wide. They would have had to just cut it up. And that's completely understandable. But when you're planning things as a DOP and if you have the luxury to do whatever you want, then just be mindful of what kind of shots you're using, because, you know, sometimes you can cheapen the effect if you overuse something. That explains all the shot reverse shots on that scene. Oh, the uh the one with, um, with Katie and Amelia. Yeah, I just, think. Yeah, I think it was like shot, uh, reverse shot, shot, reverse shot, shot, reverse shot. Like, oh, there's no coverage here. I, I <laughs> think if, it was. Does that make sense? Was it, was it when she's in the car? I think it must have been like where she's in the car and she's kind of like, um, yeah. like got the yeah, like because I because I think obviously she's covered up, so it would have been yeah. like maybe someone else, like when she's there, and then yeah, they just quickly <laughs> shot Amelia's stuff, and then poor Katie was like, who bless her isn't the most experienced actress out of all of them was like, I think she said she was kind of like a bit befuddled that it was like a second assistant director that was like saying Amelia's lines. And she was <laughs> like, oh, what's going on? Um, so uh, basically the, the takeaway that he says is though technical knowledge is important. The main emphasis must be put on how you interact with the audience. He actually said these exact words. He says, how can I tell this part of the story visually? That is, after all, why you're watching a visual medium. For example, and this is the last example I'll give, but Hitchcock said uh, something really, really amazing. Um, it's like uh, it's uh, the analogy he uses is um, I'm filming a scene in which two characters are sitting at a table together and it's a medium <laughs> kind of shot. So you can see them both and they're eating, but you can't see the bottom of the shot at all. And then a bomb goes off. OK, wow. So in that respect, you've shot shocked the audience and you've shot the characters but you've lost any kind of tension unless that was your intention but if it wasn't think of it this way 
I cut to it like I put the camera further back I have a wider shot now I see the entire room I see that there's a bomb under the table as an audience member but the characters don't know it's there and we don't know when it's going to go off and all of a sudden the tone of the scene is completely different just because of where you've put the camera and so that is why cinematography is important it can feel like a bit of a minefield and even me when I was directing my film I was like oh my god I have no idea what's going on but the thing is a good DOP will know all of these things they will know why these things are important and they should you know because some directors like to be completely hands-on and and like they will control the camera they will do everything um I think Hitchcock was where um i think there was a particular film i can't remember what it was but it was like a tracking shot that had a lot of things passing in the foreground and the dop tried to move the camera um because he was like oh well you've got all this stuff passing and it's like blocking the protagonist and hitchcock was like put the camera back where i had it and leave it there because he knew like some people are just geniuses and they have an eye for this kind of stuff and it works perfectly the basically it's kind of like these beams going across and it's all like almost like you're watching like a comic strip like each scene is like a different room it's so cool um but you know on the other hand someone like me who very inexperienced in terms of photography specifically you know we're very happy to hand the reins over to a cinematographer and some directors prefer to for example just be focused on their actors you know someone like George Lucas famously was not interested in his actors which is fine but then you get the prequels um <laughs> Zing. Shade. You know, that's fine. Like, he was more of a visionary. Some directors are like that. Some directors do everything. Some directors have to have their hands on the camera at all times, and some directors don't. And all DOPs are different. For example, this guy that I spoke to was like, I work with the director. I'm a tool of the director. Whatever they want is what I will do. And it's basically they are calling the shots. Whereas, when I spoke to uh, an editor in a different masterclass, his name was Robin Hill, and he was the editor for Pole Dark, uh, and still is, as far as I know. He was very adamant that he was not at all the director, and that he worked with the director, but at the end of the day, if he wasn't comfortable cutting a scene a certain way, he would just rather leave the project and had. And he just like would up and leave. And that was that. So everyone is going to work differently. But again, it's it's all about choices, and they will affect everything um but obviously like you know certain experimental genres will require certain different flair and i'm sure that amp will be able to tell you the importance of choices when it comes to visual effects as well because that's actually something i know fuck all about i know the definition but i i have no idea what goes into it i'm really excited to hear what she's got to say <laughs> yeah I guess that's my cue yeah I, I was about to say let's go to, what a segue let's go to effects um, I'm just gonna um, do my quick what I know about uh, effects from five-minute Wikipedia research, and then you guys can just correct me or expand <laughs> or expand on what I said, like Vox just demonstrated. So, uh, special effects are illusions or visual tricks used in the film, television, theater, video game, and simulator industries to simulate the imagined events in a story or virtual world. Special effects are traditionally divided into the categories of optical effects and mechanical effects, is what I learned. 
And mechanical effects are usually accomplished during the live action shooting. This includes the use of mechanized props, scenery, scale models, animatronics, pyrotechnics, and atmospheric effects. Meanwhile, optical effects are techniques in which images or film frames are created photographically. An optical effect might be used to place actors or sets against a different background, i.e. green screen. And yeah, basically in the easiest terms, what you see can be an illusion created by either nifty use of props, makeup, etc. Or it can be produced in post-production by clever photoshopping. To dumb it down a very lot. I know it's much more than just creative use of Photoshop. I'm just trying to make it <laughs> easy for people like me to understand what it is. <laughs> no, that was, that was a pretty good one. <laughs> now you guys can be more technical about it. Do you want to start rocks or should I? I mean, the only thing I know about it is that special effects are essentially stuff that happens on set in the moment so uh pyrotechnics explosions prosthetics um uh, anything uh, a puppetry anything like that uh wind machine the blood are all special effects and then visual effects is what you do which is everything that is happening that is on camera so all yoda the, the tricksy stuff yeah yeah so yoda is a special effect Whereas uh, the Millennium Falcon flying through the night sky is a visual effect. Although they didn't, they also replace the puppet Yoda and the puppet with, uh, with CGI Yoda. I was gonna say CGI yeah. Yoda, yeah. The, oh, yes, oh yeah. sorry, I meant like the original. Sorry, yeah, the original yeah. is a puppet. I meant like and the real Yoda. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the real Yoda in CGI. OG Yoda. Yoda. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, you you got it pretty much right there. Um, Things on, done on set are special effects. So using a good Merlin example is um, when he gets blasted in the chest. Everybody actually probably has seen this. There's actually a good um, behind-the-scenes photo of it where oh, yeah. Colin's yeah, getting strapped up yeah. with, the, uh, with the, the squib plate on him. Um, re-watching that scene, I think it was just for the smoke because you never see any point of impact in that shot. But um, yeah, that part, um, the wire stunt involved with him leaping backwards for that too is also a practical effect, a special effect. But the removal of that wire so that you don't see it and the removal of the crash mat so you don't see it, that was all done in visual effects. Mm-hmm. Adding the CG um, fireball, that's visual effects there's a lot of visual effects that happens in merlin and not a lot of special effects from what i can see like they do tend to like lean more towards the siege i mean yeah like they don't really seem to do much stuff practically like obviously stunts but i feel like a lot of stuff they do like especially like yeah fire you know obviously creatures like that i mean but this is kind of what's standard now there's not really much because it's so much cheaper to do it visually in visual effects than it is to like you know spend four hours putting makeup and prosthetics on someone yes um there's a good mix of the fire some some of the fires are real cool in the show uh some of them are obviously not which are like the fireballs ones that the actors have to touch um the dragon fire is real they 
have boards up to get it to project like it's hitting a shield, but they just have a flamethrower on set there that they whoosh it out of. <laughs> the the dragon obviously is a CG. And yeah, it's one thing I noticed while rewatching I when I first watched Merlin, I didn't watch it with my with my visual effects glasses on. When I do that, it tends to ruin things for me. So just for this episode, for, for doing this podcast, I went back and I started watching some stuff and started catching some really weird stuff, um, especially in, in the first episode. First episode, by the way, second shot of the whole series is a, is a visual effect shot. as a matte painting. I was like, oh, but right. Well, uh, shot. Which shot? Sorry. The second shot of the, the whole show where Merlin's walking towards Camelot. Oh, yeah, I think the I second heard. shot. There's like a nice mountain in the back. I'm like that that mountain, so that that's not real. <laughs> that's a matte painting. So, but yeah, so there was some clever stuff that they threw in there with like Camelot. They little flags on the top are all CG, and um, when Merlin meets Arthur, you know Arthur's throwing the knives at the the poor guy with the shield of like the five. Oh shoot, was it five knives? He throws a lot of knives. Um, two of the shots, he doesn't have anything in his hand. He's just throwing air, <laughs> which is clever. Um, there are some clever cuts because you can't really throw knives at an actor. Sorry for interrupting, but you can tell how good a knight author is that he can throw air and it still comes out as knives. That's yeah. right. I'm just saying, that's magic. Listen. Uther, what are you saying to this? <laughs> He's up to something. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, these knives, I mean, you can't throw knives at actors. That's that's kind of a liability issue. So there are some clever framing that they've done on like there's really nice close-ups of the shield and that they they chuck a knife at it and then there's a cut and then they pull back to show the guy holding yeah. the shield with the yeah. reaction. But you can <laughs> see like yeah. There's like a one framed little cut, like a little jump of color difference. And you're like, oh, clever boys. I see what you did. One of them actually has a, a 3D camera move on it. I was like, oh, that's that's pretty good. I need the, to rewatch that now and like frame oh, by frame. So, I'm really frame by frame through there. It is, <laughs> the, my problem, because we were talking about um the higher definition stuff, the, the, all the episodes I have on my computer are lower quality. So I'm trying to see through all the artifacting. Like, what is this? Yeah, I wish I had like the nice Blu-rays. <laughs> so, talking about the uh, cinematography, you were you're saying that it's important to know your camera movement. And looking back at uh, the Poison Chalice when Arthur is fighting that basilisk. It was a basilisk, right? Mm-hmm. Or, no, yeah. no, no, no. It's, it's a, a it's a cockatrice. Cockatrice. Oh, jeez. It's, it's a dinosaur. It's yeah. a dinosaur. It's, like, it's, like a it's literally a dinosaur. Yeah. So. If you notice, every shot that has that CG creature in it, it's a locked-off shot. Yeah. Because it is really hard to integrate a CG character into a moving shot. That that's like a that's like more money, <laughs> more <laughs> money. And yeah, even the the ones, and it's very rare that that the CG character and Arthur are sharing a frame because again, that integration is expensive to do. Yeah. So usually you'll see uh, Bradley take a swing kind of at something off camera and then they'll, oh, no, it's a yeah. cut to the creature reacting. Especially mm, yeah. the, the, the oldest trick. Yeah, and the point of chalice, they do this a lot. <laughs> oldest trick in the book, but but it works. Um, 
It's the same thing for slow-mo. Like, you have to basically... I mean, unless you have a shit ton of money to throw at something, if you want to have a slow-mo shot, um, you base... Or, like, or just film at any different kind of frame rate, you pretty much have to tripod it unless you're rich and good. <laughs> That's basically the rule. But, yeah, which they used a lot of slow-mo later on in the show, which I'm sure we'll discuss, but, yeah, so... Actually, watching that first episode again, they did a lot of what they called Merlin time, Mm-hmm. In post where everything kind of the camera tends to just rotate around Colin a lot, yeah, while he's yeah. doing his magic and zooming it and slow it. As they're trying to do first, like they were really trying to go for that Smallville look, like yeah, yeah, bullet time. But because they had, I think they called Clark time or something. I can't remember what they call it in Smallville. <laughs> but but yeah, it was really interesting to see. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of visual effects work. Uh, typical for Merlin. An episode. Anytime any of these dirty magic users are using magic, um, their eyes do the glow thing. That's somebody. That's a visual effect. Somebody's yeah. going in there, rotoscoping that out, and the comper is adjusting the the, the gold to come up. Uh, anytime anybody's shooting lightning out of their hand, any hand magic, got to rotoscope those hands so that yeah. you can get your effect in there. Um, and of course, I kind of noticed that in the later seasons, they're like, "F that, we're just gonna push everybody around." Oh god! So, oh. so while they're doing the pushing, um, the people flying back are flying back through rigs, through wire stunts, and crash mats, and those have to be removed so that the audience doesn't see those, and that's usually done digitally. That's that's my wheelhouse. Um, all this rotoscoping and and rig removal—that that's what I'm—that's my specialty. Um, there's lots of map paintings and set extensions, especially with when they're journeying out through the mountains, those beautiful mm-hmm. snow-capped mountains, and, and you can see it's sometimes it's really obvious. Like there was a really bad one in, um, geez, I thought I had it written down here. Oh man, there's one where they're walking towards a castle. I think it's the one where they discover the round table, but the crew is like in the forest and they're walking up towards the castle. And, and like the bottom, the bottom right of the screen is real, but the entire three quarters, the rest of it is just is so obvious. Bad painting, but, but it works. I mean, I guess there, and there's so much CG creature work. That's another one. So you got your, your wyverns and your dragons and your goblins and all those CG creatures, uh, stand in removals. Um, you remember the infamous alien, Lady in season five. So that was just a person in a suit, but that person in a suit is a bit bigger than what the CG is. That CG alien is kind of thin, but this guy in the suit is kind of bigger. So you have to remove him. They have to paint, paint that guy out so they can drop the CG. And so you don't see the the guy in the mocap suit behind her and boom, mic removals. I know this one, like people, people like, how, you know, I, I, so I worked in London and uh, at Cinefax and one of the fellows I worked with there did visual, he worked for the mill who did the visual effects for Merlin in season four there and he showed me his reel and uh, his demo reel and yeah he's, he showed me some of his Merlin work and, and yeah there's boom mics dropping into frame and he'd remove those out and he did like the hand rotos for Merlin's light light effects and it was good stuff. Oh he also did the when the Daroka comes in and swoops at Merlin. Merlin gets pulled back on the wires. He did that big wire removal there, too. 
Um, oh, and yeah, just so cool. Just regular shot enhancements. Um, I have a hard time. I mean, Pure Fallen is beautiful, but I have a hard time believing that all those b- beautiful sun rays coming through are 100% legit. I have a mm. feeling some of them are enhanced. In I think it's. I, but I, I think it could. I mean, I might be wrong because I wasn't there for filming ever. I'm sure someone could it tell me this. It's a beautiful castle. I, yeah, I think it. It probably would have just been big, big lights. I mean, maybe they might have been enhanced, but but you can't really make things lighter in post without it be, without it being very dangerous because you can get a lot of grain that way. Just a little bit. I mean, and the it's grain wouldn't notice much because there's a lot of those nice dust motes fly floating around. Yeah. But but um, yeah, I don't know. So, but it it looks really good. <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's some of the effects that they do. Um, I mentioned that that the mill did um, the visual effects for Merlin. Um, the mill is a really good effects house. They did um, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. I remember that was before, you know, that was their big one on their reel before Merlin was coming up. Um, they, they're kind of divided into two. They have the mill, they do their features, and they have the mill TV. Because the mill does um, Doctor Who as well. And that's a good thing to kind of base your expectations for the Merlin visual effects on. Because mm. if I recall, Doctor Who had a million pound budget for their episodes. And I couldn't find a number for Merlin except for season four, where they increased the budget to uh, 2.6 million an episode. So they had double the effects budget of Doctor Who. Wow. Which sounds like a lot, but when you compare it to a show like Once Upon a Time, at the same time, uh, around that same time frame, it was getting 4.5 million an episode. I don't think, though, it's fair to compare probably U.S. and U.K. markets, is it? It's it's not really. Well, I, people always give the CG a bunch of crap in Merlin. And, yeah, when you have the bigger budget, you get a better result. <laughs> and it's not fair. Um, but Once Upon a Time had, geez, like 400 visual, three to 400 visual effect shots in a single episode. Mm-hmm. Where in season five, Merlin had 700 across all 13 episodes so they weren't using a lot of visual effects in the end yeah i mean that is kind of one of my thing i mean i don't know because i don't have a problem with visual effects i think what it is for me is like and i it's more so on things like uh especially kind of superhero action films where i see behind the scenes and i literally see these actors standing in a blue room and knowing that that's all that they're in and it kind of makes me like my heart breaks a bit because i'm like this 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 is this is how we're making movies now really like this and it just makes me really sad because it's like you know for me one of the reasons why titanic is my favorite film is because the pe- like people made them like they built they built that they ship in a, built in a that pool. with their with their own hands and they and they and they lowered it with you know and they and they pulled it back up and they dried it and they set the tables and they actually built things and they moved things and they put people in places and they did stunts and they made foam propellers and like 
this is what movie making is for me and i and it makes me sad that just because now it's cheaper you just will paint it but i feel like merlin like you can tell they're in real places like you know they're in real locations they're in real woods they're in you know they actually make the effort to create an environment for you that when you do add the visual effects it's not that jarring I'm very curious to listen to your opinion on the evolution of the dragon, because I think this is something that people really talk about a lot. And I think you can definitely see a jump between seasons one and two. But I do find that there is like they're shooting it differently as well. I find that when I watch season one episodes of Merlin and the dragon, I feel as though the dragon is almost like he's right on top of him like he's really close up to the camera he looked whereas in season two i really do feel as though they've kind of he's he's a lot better placed in the space and obviously he maybe it's just me does he not look bluer to you in the season two episode like and like going forward in season one he looks like his scales almost have this like weird warm tint to them and i'm not the only person that said this my friend that's been watching it with me is like he looks bluer in this season like he doesn't like which is good he looks better but like like how do you feel about how they evolved with the cgi of the dragon um yeah the dragon that he he's something else like it's it's i don't think people give enough credit to how hard it is to rig and light and animate and get motion capture for a, a, a creature like that um great. and, and the, the mill did great season one like and they picked a good company because like i said the mill has that feature experience and like they've done creature work before their their 3ds known and and i do recall an interview where they said when they started doing season two they've introduced a ruler on set to help with the directors um, getting scaling correctly for their, their 3d basically getting focal work done a bit better. Let's see if I can go. Yeah. So I think one of the big lessons that the production team learned is how to be clever on how you view the creatures. Oh, one of the changes for this season, season two has been the creation of a giant ruler on set to help directors and the DOP frame up for size and focus. So that might be that jump in, quality you notice between season one and two especially with yeah with the focal distance like this is the first thing i notice is the dragon doesn't look like he's so kind of in the frame like filling the frame so much he looks a lot more kind of in proportion which is probably yeah what you're mentioning how they're kind of really focusing in a bit more oh that that is really amazing that is so interesting you think they would have probably tried to do that though in season one that you think focus is probably the most important thing we should be thinking about where is colin looking (laughs) he's looking at the tennis ball on the stick god they always talk about the damn tennis balls like i'm just looking i mean like really is it always a tennis ball is it just that that is the cliche that it's always a tennis ball um so yeah 2008 2010 the the mill did was the primary visual effects uh, supplier for Merlin. And in 2011, uh, they split it. The mill was doing the 3D, all the 3D creatures and stuff. And there was a new studio called Vine that was doing the matte paintings. Now, during this time, um, visual effects were kind of going through an upheaval. It was a time of great strife. And the mill wasn't doing too well. So in 2012, Shine had asked Vine to take over everything. Um, and then the next year, the mill closed. 
Oh, in shit. 2013. So uh, it's a sad story for the mill, it, really. It's a, it was a sad story for Tippett Studios. It was a sad story for Rhythm and Hughes. Uh, Rhythm and Hughes, that in 2013, that was the year that they won uh, the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects for Life of Pi. Wow. And the next day, uh, actually, no, I think it was before, it was before the ceremony, they were, they had to close the studio. The studio was bankrupt. Oh, that's so they, sad. It's uh, quite the industry, uh, which I will not get into right now. But um, ver- uh, season season five, Vine was doing everything, which is funny because they started out doing matte paintings and now they've taken on the mill's 3D work. Vine has never done 3D work before. So they they did pretty good considering. But that's why you don't see a lot of 3D <laughs> creatures in season five, except for that alien. And the dragon, I'm assuming. And the dragon, yes. But that was a reused asset. Oh, okay, fair enough. From the mill. Well, I guess something that would be very interesting to talk about, because I think it kind of links the CG and the cinematography aspect, is the switch in film that they used, obviously, uh, partway through production, which obviously I think most people probably know this by now, but if you don't know this, uh, seasons one to three of Merlin were filmed on Super 60 millimeter, and the, uh, which means it is not in uh, HD, and it was very much the uh, standard kind of format for TV at the time. And then in season four, they made the jump to 35 millimeter, which was kind of a standard movie format, but definitely not tv and i have a quote here from julian murphy about his choice for shooting in 35 millimeter which he says there were lots of reasons really the biggest reason was the cgi we use a lot of cgi and it gets more complicated each series we'd just reached a point where shooting on super 16 was making things difficult we felt we had to make a change to make the effects work on hd it's always been our intention for the show to have a storybook look we realized film would work better we really had no choice for the cgi we're doing now so i find it very interesting that their choice their cinematography choice of what they're shooting on is basically being mandated by the visual effects aspect of the show which i think is very fascinating for me what do you think yeah it was a it was a good choice and you definitely noticed the the resolution up oh yeah uh, especially on the uh manticore um Actually, all the, all the creatures in the, the following seasons on that had a lot more definition to them. They, they weren't that stupid dinosaur anymore. I'll tell you that from season one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there was there you there was definitely a big big upage in their quality. Well, and um, in seasons four and five, you mean? Yes. Would you say you can? I mean, can you see much difference from a visual effects standpoint between seasons four and five? Bearing in mind that you know they are you know a year apart like you know there was a big jump between season one and two they were doing a lot more i as someone with an untrained eye can't say i can see much difference in terms of the visual effects quality between the last two seasons but do you think that there was a jump from four to five that it i mean you say obviously they had a different studio working on it by that point that maybe didn't have experience in certain areas do you think that they kind of like that you can see that there's a better difference or did it kind of stay the same I feel like uh, it's kind of hard to say. The there there was a there was a change for sure. Just kind of looking back at some of the episodes right now, and like looking at ones like the Desir and the Dark Towers, thinking of some of the the map paintings and 
kind of the more hidden visual effects that you don't really catch, like not the big glaring CG ones, but some of those ones, yeah, they they really up their game a bit for sure between those two seasons. Oh, cool. Especially with the Lamy. I'm thinking about with the Lamy in season four. I was like, I don't know. But then, yeah, the, I think there was a pretty good good change there. And it definitely looked more feature. And they were they always kept going on back then about, oh, we're going to make it more like Game of Thrones. Oh, was, my God. And I don't think they just meant tone, but they wanted like that that visual tone, like the feel of it as well. Like the better visual oh, yeah. effects, like the, they, the, the feature film stock. Yeah, they were Quite going literally using that, the film sure. stock. Yeah, and I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily mind that. I like, I do find it interesting that their main choice for switching to 35 mil was from a visual effects standpoint, rather than like, oh, we kind of feel like maybe we should do it for the quality. And you know, something that has been talked about a lot by the producers is the fact that you know, because it's so much more expensive to shoot on 35 mil, that they really were putting a big amount of emphasis on rehearsal time. And apparently when they were shooting the first few seasons, rehearsal was pretty much non-existent or if it was, it was not very long. And basically they were just using takes as rehearsal because, you know, the film was so (laughs) cheap. Well, not cheap, but yeah, they were essentially just using takes as rehearsal. Um, You know, personally, I think that the actors were still pretty damn good even then especially Colin for fuck's sake I mean how is he so good under such like circumstances but like by four I don't know I mean I definitely think that they the thing is is especially Bradley and Colin they're always so good I find it hard to say yes I can see a massive improvement between Bradley and Colin's acting between seasons four and five uh, between seasons three and four because they kind of emphasized the rehearsal period because they wanted obviously to save money on the film (laughs) Um, but they you know they say that they felt like they were getting better performances out of their actors which I mean I I believe them you know but I feel as though they were always so good, especially those two, that I find it hard to kind of, you know, think about whether there's a big difference. Maybe maybe in someone like Katie, who is not perhaps as good as the rest of them, I think maybe this gave her an opportunity to kind of dig a bit deeper during rehearsal. And you definitely have like those moments where I I can feel, especially in season four, that she's being uh, a bit more genuine in her emotions. But I feel like her character in general was so flat that it's hard for her (laughs) to really access much. I feel so bad for Katie (laughs) because she's so amazing, but was given so little. But yeah, it's just, I I mean, do you think you can see a big jump in quality of acting because of this new filming setup that they're doing? The the change to 35 millimeter, I think, helped a lot, especially, I mean, the BAFTAs kind of speak, like, kind of speak it out for you, too, if you noticed that Merlin, visual effects wise, kind of was off the radar until 2011 when they got their first nomination for best visual effects. And then and they won in 2012, the, the next year. Yeah. So that kind of helped there, too. As for the acting. Yeah, I think having the the. The, I guess if they put the limitation on that we're not just going to run the camera all day or day uh, because 35 millimeters is kind of expensive. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm surprised. I'm, I'm a little surprised they they were f- using film at all, honestly, because a lot of shows at this time are switching to digital. Mm-hmm. But eh, I'm not sure why they chose that. But yeah, having the having that strict like 
you have to have your A game when this camera's rolling. Probably pulled it pulled out the the better acting. For sure. I'm thinking, you know, if I mean, do you think that that was shooting on 35 mil? Does it does it help make the visual effects easier from like your point of view? Like, say that you were doing visual effects on on Super 16, like would that basically be almost impossible for the kind of stuff that they were wanting to do at that point visually? I don't think it was impossible. No, I, I mean, visual effects can be done on nearly any format. Like a lot of those um, viral videos you see of, like in a, like there's a lot of there's a lot of cameras like iPhone recorded footage that people are, have been adjusting. That people think, oh, that's so real. It's like no, no, that you can see the matte edges on there. But up, up, like I said, upgrading, up resing, up resing to. Uh, 35 millimeter made the footage it just made it look sharper it made everything look really good yeah like i like watching back at the griffin in season one's lancelot it it didn't have that right feel to it it was the 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 darks were off the contrast and it was really soft feeling yeah it didn't feel like it belonged in in the in the shot Compared to again, like that Manticore, where it was, it was sharper and it was mm-hmm. more in the environment. It was integrating a lot better. Yeah, that's what one of my friends said. Actually, this friend that I'm just introducing to Merlin now, she actually mentioned exactly that. She said, "Oh, this Griffin, he, he just doesn't like. I can, I can tell they're just pointing at nothing. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of. But you know, I do. You know, I do try and think." It, I don't cringe when I watch season one for effects. I don't think they're that bad, really. And maybe that's just me being naive and in love with this show. But I never considering their budget, they had they were doing really well. Yeah, really. I'm cringing. So I'm like, oh, once upon a time, we were we were doing way better. I'm like, yeah, but you had like twice the budget, Mm -hmm. three times the budget, nearly. It's like, um, yeah, I guess I. I should just shut my mouth and enjoy this. Uh. But I mean, for Christ's sake, I honestly think Merlin did so well. I mean, it clearly didn't put the viewers off because the viewers went up and up every year until season five was their was was their most successful year. I mean, that fuck that never happens. That's just that's just insane. Like you know, yeah. I mean, now Doctor Who maybe like with the Thirteenth Doctor, but not with a show like Merlin. Usually, it's they were like, just hitting their stride and they knew they were like, you know what, we're gonna just get while the getting's good and end it. Oh. Well, that you know, some some would say that that's the way to do it some would yeah. say they maybe had another season in them like maybe but i maybe. think uh, and we've discussed this before but uh, from from what we know uh, based on interviews and stuff the the guys were just done they were like i am yeah. i am sick of this now yeah i think um, on we had two week turnovers for episodes it was it was very rough yeah uh, we have i've been kind of going through that recently <laughs> Even even with the features, that that still happens. We're we're the we're the last ones to touch the film, pretty much. So it's like, oh geez, I hope That's everything's happening. fine. Trailer deliveries, like you'll notice sometimes in trailers, the visual effects aren't done, so or they're half done. That's because yeah, I don't really notice. Much, but yeah, <laughs> trailers are a big, and also probably why you only see like the first twenty minutes of a movie in a trailer because the rest of the visual effects aren't finished. Exactly. Um, I mean, this is just really uh, just fucking amazing stuff you're giving us. Honestly, it's like, like especially for a film fan like me, I'm just like, because I really, you know, this they they really do film school because it's not really the director's concern, not really. Yeah. Like, 
you're you want to tell the story and whatever happens afterwards like you then hand it over to the best people that you know but that's not really what you're there to be worried about so yeah I this think is that like, might be the problem yeah I think, I think that might be the problem as to why we're getting such junk coming like the plates we're getting nowadays they don't have the thought put into them about yeah how to make this happen without with using minimal visual effects everybody wants to fix it in post um there's all sorts of stuff like i don't want to use examples (laughs) please use examples you can do whatever you want on this podcast (laughs) you are an academy award winner you can say whatever the heck you want (laughs) don't enable me (laughs) oh but but no there's 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 stuff like there's there are some pretty nasty looking green screens that, that have come across like like the whole point of a green screen is to have a nice flat green wall that you can pull uh, a key off of. But the problem is, is we're getting these ones with shadows or um, wrinkles, any like, things that vary the color. Sometimes they'll they'll put a completely different color green screen in front of an already existing green screen. Now you have two different green screens with a big seam running through that you have to try and paint out to pull a nice key like we're getting all sorts of weird stuff coming through um wires going over actors um thing rigs rigs needing to be removed that you know shouldn't have been in there in the first place uh lights and cameras on set like in the shot Uh, that we have to remove like what is this? And they do it probably on purpose to be like, yeah, they'll, I'll fix I, it in post. Fix it in post. And, and you know, we have we have a visual effects supervisor on set, you know, trying to make it, trying to, to <laughs> get it as best they can, like trying to calm the, but the director, you know, once they get going, it's, it's hard. I know because I've been there and I've been like, oh shit, I can't use this shot because there's a boom in the mirror. But I'm like, at the time, I was just so excited. <laughs> um, yeah. I'd like to just give a quick shout out to the DOPs that actually worked on Merlin. I I, I, I am sorry if I didn't actually look up the visual effects uh, specialists that worked on Merlin. I didn't look up their names. I'm so sorry because <laughs> I didn't I, I didn't actually think of that. But uh, Merlin had six DOPs uh, all in all. And the main guy that uh, some people that are interested in this might already know his name is Dale McCready. Dale! Woo, Dale! Dale is just out there doing the Lord's work constantly yes. on Instagram and blessing me with some truly amazing shots. And Dale uh, um, was the DOP for 42 episodes, so pretty much nearly all, all of them, uh, apart from, surprisingly enough, the majority of season five, because the majority of season five was uh, done by a guy called Ashley Rowe. And they did 11 episodes, uh, not the first two so he was responsible for shooting or being in charge of the shoot of the final episode of Merlin, not Dale, which kind of breaks my heart because Dale is like, you know, Dale is important. <laughs> we love Dale. And he wasn't and he wasn't the DOP for that, uh, for those end and end sequences. Um, then we have someone called Sam McCurdy, who did four episodes. Jeffrey Wharton, who did three episodes. Peter Greenhouse, oh god, that's probably Welsh, um, that did three episodes, and Jim O'Donnell that did two episodes. And a lot of the ones I just mentioned worked on episodes in season one, particularly, just like odd bits here and there. So the amazing cinematographers of Merlin, who we owe a lot of amazing content to. I mean, seriously, just really amazing work they did on this show. Um, do you 
you probably don't know any of the visual effects people that you want to give a shout out to, do you? Or if you do, off the top of your head, go for it. <laughs> Not off the top of my head, um, but um, I, I can tell you that the mill and Vine uh, did the uh, the seasons. Um, yes, that's about it. <laughs> um. Well, if we don't have any more to kind of discuss... I'd like to like, discuss something about cinematography. Oh, okay, since, cool. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I was... I mean, the only kind of notes I have on cinematography for Merlin is, you know, mostly that, yeah, the only there's very little information that we have on what they were doing, um, which is very frustrating. I know that they shot on Super 16mm and then 35, and that they were using RE cameras at least between seasons one and three. Um, but the problem is, is that... I mean, there's very little information on Del, on Del McCready's site. Apart from the articles that were written at the time when they switched to 35 mil, there's very little information about what they were doing. Because I don't know. Like, I think because the show was so well known for its visual effects and everyone was so hyped about that, they talked about that a lot. Oh, we've got so much good CGI. We've got so much. And I feel like, you know, probably for a lot of people, they don't really care about the camera and they don't really care about that kind of stuff. The only time I remember, and unfortunately because my hard drive shit itself and I don't have the like actual secrets and magic to hand to watch i would have had to look at the dvds and i didn't have time uh there is a a, a short extract of dale mccready talking about one of my favorite shots in merlin which even though it's an owen shot it doesn't matter it, it's gorgeous and it's and it's their first kiss and how he basically was like right i want to try and like film this in a particular way so he was like right, i'm going to put a big light here and i put the camera in, like in a particular place and i like shot it at like a particular kind of frame rate like make sure that it was nice and slow and the directors are looking at me going like what is going on and they don't know what it's actually going to look like and they can't see what I see and he's kind of like laughing and being like they don't know you <laughs> they don't know and it's just really sweet and obviously it looks beautiful I mean this is what I love about the cinematography in Merlin it's not experimental in the slightest but I mean there are some like I said shots that I just want to frame and put on my wall like they they love to just they really know how to light a scene very well. Apart from there's one particular scene that we'll get to um, when we do uh, Lancelot, uh, Lancelot and Guinevere. There's a scene in that in that um, in that episode that I always am like, is this like lightened because it looks grainy as fuck? <laughs> it was so Dale, bad. Dale loves that shot so much that he has the video of it on his website, like on his it Merlin is- page. It's the second thing you see. Which, yeah. What's your favorite shot? Oh my god. Well, I actually had a list of five shots that I that I love. That's probably one of my memorable ones. I love uh from season 1, probably my favorite shot is Lancelot getting knighted. The light flooding into that room and just mm-hmm. the space and everything is absolutely gorgeous. Season 2, uh probably uh, I love the almond kiss. I also love um it's there's nothing particularly special about it, but it's the first time we kind of see Merlin standing in the same presence as Kilgara. And it's right after he's talked him down in his dragon Lord voice. And it's this wide shot and the dragon's just got his head bowed and Merlin's standing yeah. tiny. And it's like that, that like it, it, it's that classic, like boy in his dragon shot, you know? And it's just like, ah, it's so beautiful. Um, season three, what did I have written down for season three? Um, season three, um, there's a shot 
that I really like kind of for the uh, for the slow mo, I did put Arthur pre- preparing for his test when he's washing his face and like the water's dripping down his face. I thought, Momo, you'll appreciate that, won't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. You, you still hear Momo? Oh, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm around. Um, and, uh, but I love the shot, um, from that same episode later on. It was a really weird thing that they did where Arthur's waking up. Like, this is the thing, like, sometimes they do things and it has such a romantic undertone. They don't even know they're doing it. Arthur's waking up from the bracelet having, like, fucked him over and Merlin's there waiting and the camera is simulating Arthur's eyelids. So it's kind of blurring out into, like, a clear focus and then Merlin smiles. Arthur's point of view shot, yeah. Yeah. And Merlin smiles, but it's like, like so romantic. I'm like, what is happening? It's I so have a story crazy. about that. Oh, please share it. Okay, so that was season th- four or season three of that one? Season, no, season three, three, episode eight. Okay, so season three was 2011. Um, I was drawing fan art in 2010, and I'm doing this one comic, and I'm like, I need something from like Merlin, from like like Arthur's point of view. He's on the ground, he's looking up, and Merlin's looking over him and giving like this dopey smile. And of course, nothing exists of this, so I I kind of find some references. I think I created it myself, but I and I I drew this comic and put it out there. And then, yeah, like the the year later. That exact same shot shows up in Merlin. <laughs> and I'm like, where the hell was that when I needed it? Oh my god, that's <laughs> insane. But it's honestly I'm... like amazing shot. It's beautiful. It is. It is really good. And, yeah. and his smile is just the best in that as well. Uh, just everything about it is awesome. Um, season four, I um, there are two shots that I love from the same episode. And I believe if I remember correctly, that the director actually had to fight for this particular shot to stay in the episode, which is after Merlin is sitting outside of the uh, throne room and Guy's is sitting with him and he's on the side and then Guy's walks off into the distance and Colin's just to the left of frame and he's just sitting there on his own. And it's just like, oh my God, that, that, that to me is basically like a visual representation of like the show and his character. It's so gorgeous. But I think a lot of people's favorite shot is probably that one that follows the day after Arthur, you know, loses his dad and Merlin is sitting there with his, you know, head against the wall and those doors are open and the light floods in and then the shot switches and it's just Merlin looking at Arthur's shadow as he comes through the door. And literally, like, my heart is pounding because I'm just like, it's so beautiful. It's that really stunning. is a beautiful show. Yeah, he's backlit so nice. And... It is. And we tried to recreate it in Pierfond, right, Mom? Like, right, Mom? Yeah. Like, we, we, just... we tried. Yeah, the light is just, Not... it doesn't really is, work. Didn't, and then... didn't somebody fix that for you? As, yeah, but there's still the, the big glass case. It's just, yeah, because they have uh, an exhibition thing in the Great Hall and you can just, you can see that. Like, you'd have to do more, more fixing to actually make it, make it nice. <laughs> so, yeah. It's, well, it... recreating those scenes in the castle uh, should give people uh, an idea, because you were talking about cinematography, how you have to decide, choose your angles. And that one was particularly a low angle shot. 
Mm-hmm. And there was a reason and now that people are trying to recreate it and maybe they can appreciate some of the, the, the thought that goes into some of those beautiful shots. Okay. I, I was going to say there's um speaking of favorite shots in the show in, in the castle, there's this beautiful red banner with a black uh, hawk on it or something, a black bird on it. And so many times throughout the show, people walk in front of it and it doesn't quite line up to give them the. It almost looks like the the they have the, the, the wings. The, the angel wings. The wings line up on them, and it never quite lines up until one time, Morgana walks in front of it when she's you know in in season four episode thirty sword sword in the stone part two when she's you know all evil and walking in front of it and those black wings come out of her shoulders, and it's yeah. just such beautiful composition on that shot. It was yeah. awesome. That is such a gorgeous shot. Um, my final favorite one, which is from season five, it's uh, the scene. Uh, it's in the finale. It's the scene where they're having the conversation. Merlin's saying the whole, I was born to serve you. And they're sitting on that log. And then the shot cuts to quite wide uh, just as they're about to get up. So he's put Arthur's arm over him. And it's just so green and lush Mm -hmm. and the frame is so perfect and they're sitting i think they're actually sitting in the right of frame which is actually quite um they are uh quite quite unusual yeah and they're so small and there's something about it and like you know if i was kind of you know going to sit here and start to theorize i'd say something about like you know their small part in the big kind of you know destiny and all that kind of stuff but there's something about the framing of that shot and how tiny they look and how close they're sitting and how the contrast between, you know, Arthur's chainmail and his very kind of cold, like, you know, silver colors and Merlin's warm, earthy tone, like, oh, and against the green, they really had the perfect locations for for, for stuff like this. They really, Merlin really did. Merlin was blessed with locations. They really were. I say that shot, um, having them small and off to the right, I, it's been a while since I've seen that, that sequence. Um, but I think they followed the the old cinematography rule of journey the hero's journey going from right to left um i believe that any time that they were traveling on that in that sequence they were always going right to left that's so cool um and so having that wide shot of them ready to continue their journey showing that they had a long way to go still they went wide and kept them on the right so they could go up and naturally go right to left again Oh my I gosh. think, like I said, don't quote me on that. I haven't watched that's, it. That's cool. Okay. I think because they did the same thing with Lord of the Rings. Um, the characters are always traveling in a certain direction to, to show pro- progress. The uh, Sam and Sam and Frodo are always going in. I don't know if they're going left to right or right to left, but they were always going one direction. I think uh, like they're going left to right. I think it was left to right. That's right. Awesome. And the enemies always tend to travel right to left, I think, in that. That's, that does make sense to me somehow like i don't know why but yeah it makes sense that the heroes would travel from the left i don't know why that would make sense but it kind of makes sense in my brain um but obviously you know i feel like one of the most iconic shots just ever in merlin is obviously that that final one of him just Mm. walking past the island and just stopping perfectly framed right on the right hand side with the island in the middle and just pausing and it's just 
absolutely perfect it's oh my god but there are a lot of like you know like you know you talk about frameable shots like there are shots that mean a lot to me like in terms of like a character moment or things that I remember you know how I felt when I looked at the shot but like in terms of like visual I feel like yeah seasons four and five they were just outdoing themselves I mean you sweeping like landscape shots you know or you know even them walking towards uh the dark tower you know in the in that orange like you know bright orange desert and you know all these kind of things with that beautiful focal point of, of, of like the tower in the distance like you know there's nothing particularly interesting in terms of you know oh my god it makes me feel things but it looks absolutely incredible you know um, and and just anything when they're out like you know in nature and all that kind of stuff i absolutely love or anything in the throne room is beautiful like arthur's yes. coronation is just you know <laughs> with the replicated extras <laughs> well speaking of that um the uh his father's son uh season four episode five the you know when they both did have that duel against that huge guy yeah. And Arthur's army, the Camelot knights are all up on the cliff and they're overlooking, uh, Annis's army. That, and, and that shot was very ambitious. Mm. Um, cause they had, I mean, it looks like they duplicated out like, you know, a couple thousand soldiers for that army. Yeah. And I mean, the, the first two layers of people of the Camelot knights were real and blue screened with a camera move to reveal that huge army and it was it was pretty well done considering that is a that is an amazing episode in and, terms and of when, I mean, when they talk, so many extras when they talk about wanting to do game of thronesy looking shots i think of that yeah that was a very <laughs> that's a very games of throny kind of shot oh i think of all the stuff they did in the snow when i think about game of thrones stuff they wanted to do <laughs> like that just makes sense to me but speaking of his father's son um there's actually it's weird because whenever i think of like shots i love i think oh i should pick something that like is so aesthetically pleasing but there are actually in terms of vidding because obviously you know this is very important for vidding is you know picking things that work and look good and are really like em- emotionally impactful and from a mirth point of view and i know the momo is going to switch off now because she's kind of tired of this by now but from a mirtha point of view there are two scenes in this in this episode where the shot and the framing and just the cuts are so damn perfect that they make me want to weep on the floor and it's uh kent that gorgeous uh, sequence of shots of the kind of close up on Arthur that's kind of slowly zooming in and then cutting to Merlin who's very very close up and then cutting to Arthur and then cutting back to Merlin with the light and it's just firelight and it's close and it's intimate and I'm just like oh my god and I, I I can promise you that every person that I have shown this episode to fandom or no fandom even if they're not even interested in Merthyr or whatever they look every time I've shown them they're like okay this is fucking ridiculous <laughs> because this is basically like a rom-com it's that kind of and this is what I'm saying about like how it's important where how you shoot things because you can convey a tone that it might be completely different from what you're trying to present like we know that merlin is trying to present these two as bros tm but (laughs) that kind of framing and that kind of you know you're showing just merlin's face you're not showing anyone else in that frame it's just about him that that is a significant choice similarly Later on, the uh, the sequences you were talking about uh, with Annis's army when uh, Arthur is about to fight that fight that giant man, he's got him down on the ground, he's about to kill him, and yes. the shot 
the shot where he's it's like a close-up on him i'm just smiling because i love it (laughs) there's a close-up on him and he turns around and he pauses and you don't know what he's looking at and then the shot cuts to merlin which is a close-up and just behind merlin there's this flag that's waving and it kind of cuts through the top like top uh, left hand corner of the frame and it's i think it's slightly slow it's not quite i think at normal speed it's slightly slowed down and it's that kind of and then it cuts back to arthur he's looking him in the eye and he decides to just put the sword in the ground and I'm just like, your OTP could never. <laughs> it's like these shots just kill me. They well, will... and again, talking about the, the angle choice, like you hear that was a very high angle and low angle yeah. reverse shot, reverse shot. Yes. And, um, oh, with the flag in behind Merlin, with the symbolism. And yeah. Yeah, oh. that's a really good an- shot to analyze. It really, I mean, I... I kind of love it. <laughs> I just love. No, that that episode means a lot to me. Like in a spe- like some of the shots in that episode are absolutely stunning. And yeah, like you said, with the low angle and the high angle, it is absolutely gorgeous. And especially yeah, if you want to look at symbolism, kind of Merlin is in the position of power. He's he he you know mm-hmm. he's above. He is looking. Down. Oh my god, I love I love this stuff so much. It's amazing. But um yeah, that um, shot with Arthur and Gwen kissing in the chambers there. Uh, that composition has some good balance to it because you're kind of in the doorway so you got like the two walls and the door flanking the shot and there in the middle it's very symmetrical um, also unappreciated mm-hmm. barefooted Arthur in that shot too which is nice yes <laughs> oh, oh, oh yeah oh, that sorry. That is a pretty shot as well, that like pan out. And this is what I'm saying like about choosing your camera techniques because I have spoken on this podcast before. I think it might have been in the Armin episode. I remember saying to Momo like, listen, that is quite a specific kind of cinematic language of that zoom out while a couple is kissing. Mm -hmm. Are we supposed to believe that they did something after this? She, she might have, uh, they might have just had her pop her leg while they were at it too. That was the old way to get around the haze code of saying that they yeah, were yeah, And that's like, why you always see the old, the old, uh, they kiss and the woman lifts her leg and the, her leg pops back. And I was like, oh, yeah, get around the yeah. haze code. Well, this is, this is the thing. Like, and I did a lot of screwball comedy, uh, stuff when I did my master's degree. And so we had to, you know, we learned all about this kind of like, yeah, cut to something else. And that, not really when I was watching it at the foot, but the scene is quite, you know, intimate, the way it's written, the way that they play it. And then that kind of pullback of the camera, just that one decision, like they kept yep. it static, but that pullback, I was like, oh, shit, are we supposed to believe something here? Because I'm not sure how I feel about this in a medieval show. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what's happening. The but- camera tells you, yeah, because you're you're leaving them alone. You're mm, let's get out of here. Let's leave these two. That's what the yeah, camera definitely saying. It's a nice effect. I'm not sure the show ever knows what it's trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> Even with its cameras, it doesn't quite know what it was. Even the cameras don't know what they're trying to say on this show. Um, Momo, you must have some uh, shots that you love, even off the top of your head. Tell us must, what they are. Must I? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Please, join the conversation. <laughs> Um, well, you already mentioned Arthur getting ready for his quest or like getting ready to prey on his quest because that's, that's always a nice, a nice shot, honestly. Um, honestly, one I like is 
um, in the very first episode when Merlin looks out of his little chamber's window and then you have this wide shot of the castle in the dark with a couple of lights on in the lower town and in the castle. That's one that I like personally. And that's another. That's a shot that wasn't used a lot too. That sort of angle from, like, <laughs> they didn't use a lot of looking out over the city shots. Yeah, yeah. And so it's nice liked, to see that. Yeah. So I liked, I liked that one. Um, and these are the only two that, um, come to mind right off the top of my, like I would have said also the. The first kiss for Arthur and Gwen, because apart from the content of that scene, um, this is a very nice, a very nice shot. I like how it's how it's done. Like even uh, with the like the entire composition of the of that thing with the with the music and everything, I actually do like that shot, that scene, that moment. Even though I don't really care for Arm Arwen that much, but. It's it's a nice scene, like so lucky lucky Arwen shippers, honestly. That's very true. I mean, you know, I will say any shot of Merlin sweaty looking like he's gonna be having some coffee soon is always a shot I'm very interested in. So that's probably why I like the poison chalice so much, because there's a <laughs> lot of that happening in there. The one where Morgana has him tied up. I'm trying to remember the uh, oh, uh Servant of Two Masters. Two masters. <laughs> Uh, throw him another bucket of water on that boy please oh my god we also really uh well we discussed actually specifically we don't often go into cinematography stuff in episode reviews but the shot in the mort de arthur of the uh window changing from night to day and then it kind of panning down to mullen's hand and then it kind of having that very very specific point of view with the with the hand in the foreground and mm. merlin in the background is gorgeous that I is very it. nice indeed that's true I mean, you could just, like, a lot of these shots are very, very beautiful. I'm actually, I do you know what? I kind of want to canvas some of these now. <laughs> I really do. They're just so beautiful. Um, what we should do, what we should do for our, uh, when we start the season two episode reviews, is just, like, each pick one one favorite shot of the episode. Yes. Oh There's a good God. idea. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Do you two want to talk about anything else with regard to cinematography and effects? On, because I have this little thing where I had like um, top five uses of special effects, etc., etc. But we sort of we've sort of covered all of this, um, I think, with like mm-hmm. favorite things and uh, yeah, talking about. Oh, tell me about your favorite visual effects ones. I don't. Well, I don't. I don't. I didn't write down any because you don't have any favorite shots. Not uh, really. I, <laughs> yeah. Rocks despairs of me because I never have any replies to these sort of favorite, favorite thing. Like Rox's Rox's most favorite category is like favorite quotes and stuff. And I never have any quotes because I just I rarely care about them as much as she does. Like Rox has a little notebook in which she writes down favorite quotes and lines from books and movies and shows. So I can cry when I'm alone. So yeah, and, and she just she revels in this and it's so amazing that she gets so much enjoyment out of this and I just like there will be there will be moments where I'm like, Oh yeah, this is really nice and this is really cool. But other than that, I often don't really care. Like I'm I like quoting stuff back, but it's not really you know, it, I don't I don't go to pieces over over nice quotes most of the All time. Right. And I just I don't even when I do, I don't really remember them most of the um, time. Fair enough, fair You know when Merlin does magic and his eyes do the golden magic thing? Yeah. I think 
that there is an artist who sit there eight hours a day tracing Colin's eyes. Every frame. <laughs> that's their job. That's Just looking at his eyes all day long. And it wasn't me. You should tell that to Ellerwin because she'll put it on the list of dream jobs she has. <laughs> right along with Colin Hairfluffer and uh, putting like spray. spraying yeah. spraying Colin water with water. Yeah. Uh, it'll go there. Yeah. Just looking at his eyes all day. Oh my gosh! Amazing. Well, yeah. I'm just trying to say that every one of these shots is meticulously looked at by like <laughs> frame by frame. <laughs> Over and over, and there's some, <laughs> there's some, there's some visual effects supervisor saying, "Can we make the sky a little bit more blue? Can we make it a little less blue? Can we add that cloud over? That cloud looks too pink. Colin's eyes look too golden. You know, That's Bradley's awesome. hair needs a little extra fluff. I don't know. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> that is wow. so sunbeams in this room. Um, I was gonna mention just as a com- just like for comedic effect, there is one shot that I do pry like worship in this fandom, and I haven't talked about it for quite some time. Um, it's the wide shot of Arthur's Bane Part One, in which Merlin and Arthur are trapped in a net, and you just <laughs> see the net bouncing up and down in a wide shot perfectly dark and i was just kind of like do you know what i'm never going to be mad that this shot exists in this show <laughs> it is basically the, the best rabbit? where'd the other rabbit go <laughs> all right so this has been incredibly interesting for me to listen to mostly i hope for for all other listeners also to listen to and just to to get shown this world of cinematography and effects and what they all can do and how much of Merlin, uh, the production of Merlin is actually, you know, movie magic. See what I did there? Anyway. (laughs) Stop. I can can see that nobody cares about this. No, I just was like like, face palming, like, stop. (laughs) The crickets were epic in that. (laughs) But But added in post. Yes, please. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. I know that Rox is the funnier of us too. It's Oh it's evi- don't say No no, that. it's evi- it's evidenced by the fact that most of our intro bloopers are actually you and not I, me. That's just because I'm a very embarrassing person, Momo. <laughs> that has nothing to do with humor. It's and also it's mostly you like taking the piss out of me and and then me getting baited by it. So I wanted to say about me, you're clearly the more mature out of the two. <laughs> yeah, so I think that this is, we've come to the end finally of our, our, our cinematography and special effects episode. And I'm sure Momo has some credits for you that she yes. wants to read. Yes. So our theme music was composed by Sidesteppings exclusively for Merlissen. Our news music is from Manzardian on freesound.org. And for anyone who cares, I am Momotastic on AO3, where I post fanfic, and Momopods also on AO3, where I post podfic. And you can also find me on Tumblr as Momotastic27 and also on Twitter as Momotastic27, if you so please. And I am Miss Snowfox with an extra X on Tumblr and an extra X on Twitter. And I'm Miss Snowfox on Instagram as well as Miss Snowfox Cosplays. I am on YouTube as Magical Unicorn 22 for all my fan vids. And if you choose to torture yourself this way, I'm also on AO3 as Miss Snowfox where I have uh, a 
couple of fix and a couple of pod fix. So that is apparently available to you just online, just existing there. So <laughs> I mean, that's your own fault. Yeah. You put it there. <laughs> I mean, what can I say? I I make bad decisions. <laughs> you're a glutton for you're a glutton for punish, punishment is what what I'm getting here. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before this escalates. Thank you to our guest, Academy Award winner, Amphigori. Also, I want to say BAFTA winner, Amphigori. I could be ba- winning us. a BAFTA right now. I could be winning <laughs> one right now, and I'm podficking with you guys. And, um, yeah, thank you for joining us for this episode. It's been great having you on, having your expertise, and also your just just chatting with you. It's been great. Thank you very much. Uh, it was great to be here, uh, finally. Um, and if <laughs> anybody wants to see my fan art, uh, I can be found on the internet, Amphigori, everywhere. Uh, Twitter, uh, AO3, LiveJournal, Pillowfort, DeviantArt. Uh, it's all Tumblr. the same, except for Tumblr. Tumblr is Amphigori-art. <gasps> all right. Um, but Amazing. not like I spend too much more time on that crazy place. So <laughs> yeah, I mean we'll be linking to all your social media anyway, so people will be able to find you. Awesome. Indeed, and please come back. I would love to come back if you want to. I don't know where I'd fit in, but I'd love to help out where I can. Anytime, anytime. anytime there's an episode <laughs> review you like, anytime there's a character, like anything, just hit up Momo and I. Please come back. I have yeah. had such a blast having you on. I know that Momo probably has too. So oh, of please, course. definitely. Will yes. do. Thank you so much. <laughs> I like talk show hosts. Please come back anytime. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm just channeling Oprah now, and right. you get to come back, and you get to come back, and you get to come back. <laughs> No, next time on Merlissen, we will have another episode review and we will finally be starting season two of Merlin. Exciting. <laughs> so we will be talking about the curse of Cornelius Segan. And thin, thin, thin Colin. Gorgeous, thin Colin. Yes, and also Cedric in his nice feather coat. Yes, so this will be exciting. And you will get to listen to that in two weeks. And until then, I have been Mimotastic. And I have been Miss Snowfox. And our guest was Academy Award winner Amphigori. Thank you very much. Bye! <laughs> Bye! <laughs>